Tonight, we're going to be in Genesis 43 as we pick up back in the book of Genesis. And if you can hold a place in Genesis 43 and also turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at a message tonight called Envy and Mercy as we continue to move through this portion of the book of Genesis that focuses on Joseph. Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ. And Joseph's been doing something very unique with his brothers. He's been putting them through the paces, testing them, really to see if they've changed. They sold him into slavery because of envy and jealousy. And he uh, was 17 years old when that happened to him. He stood before the Pharaoh at 30. We know from this story that there would be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. As we move into Genesis 43, we are in the years of famine. So just as a time marker, Joseph is approaching the age of 40, and he has been without his family for quite a long time. There's been a lot of hurt, a lot of wounds, I'm sure a lot of questions. But finally, because of a famine, as God would have it in his sovereignty, the brothers have come before Joseph, though they don't know who he is, but he knows who they are. And in chapter 42, we saw that encounter that took place, and we'll, we'll look back for a little bit to set some context, and then we'll move ahead. But as I mentioned, um, Ephesians chapter 2, if you turn there, as Joseph becomes a type of Christ with his brothers, and the mercy of God is on display, um, we're gonna, I just want to show you some verses in Ephesians 2, but let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for all the precious souls that have come here tonight. Thank you for your word, which is nourishment for the soul, light uh, to our path, uh, strength. We need it for perspective, Lord. We need it for power. Um, there's so many things that your word does for us, so please help us, Lord, to set aside every weight, every concern, uh, whatever there may be, Lord, that may be weighing us down, and let us just release that to you tonight. In exchange for that, would you give us your strength and mercy and grace? There are some people in this room tonight that are sick and some who are fighting illnesses and some who are just going through tough times, Lord, and you know every heart and you know what they need tonight. So I just pray that you would speak to every heart and bless them, I pray in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 3. It says, among them, Ephesians 2, 3, we, we too all, uh, formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. If you're interested, that is a key verse to know what our nature was before meeting Christ. We were by our very nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Just note that in the ages to come, which would point to the New Jerusalem and what's ahead of us in the reign of Christ and beyond, God is gonna be showing us the surpassing riches of his grace 
in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're going to be at his table, literally, and it's going to be awesome. Now, in Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 43, as we continue to mine these riches and look at the typology and look at the grand story of Joseph, Joseph and just what an incredible man he was, we're picking up the story in Genesis 43. And because we've, we've been away for a couple of weeks from the story, let me just backtrack for a second. Jacob has gotten the news that this Egyptian ruler that he doesn't know is Joseph has treated the, uh, his sons kind of strangely. He's asked some penetrating questions about their family and their little brother and their dad and uh, some strange questions that have arisen. And in 42.36, their father Jacob, 42.36 of Genesis, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Now Simeon stayed behind in the prison. And you would take Benjamin? All things or all these things are against me. Now, a lot of us, we, we said, yeah, I've said that before. Everything, you ever sit in your living room before? Everything is against me. <laughs> Maybe in freeway traffic. Everything, church parking lot. Everything is against me. Hopefully not. <laughs> then Reuben spoke to his father and said, you may put my two sons to death. Now, I don't know if they were in the room, but I would be a little uncomfortable with Dad making that commitment. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, my son, this is Benjamin now, son of my right hand is what Benjamin means, shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. He's the only one I have from Rachel. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking then you would bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. And that's the way we ended chapter 42. And so this is the backdrop of the story now as we move into chapter 43. God is working out his plan, but Jacob has been confronted by these incredible things that have happened in Egypt. And the brothers are starting to realize that God is doing some things in their life, they're seeing the similarities. I'm sure that they've seen them, that this, this man, this Egyptian ruler that they don't know is Joseph has spoken harshly to them. He's accused them falsely. These are all things that Joseph suffered. They spoke harshly to him. They wouldn't listen to his pleas to uh, spare his life. They accused him of being a spy. That seems to be at least implied because Joseph went and checked on the brothers. And he's putting them through the paces. Uh, now, he put them in prison for a few days, and now Simeon is in prison as well. If you go back to 42, uh, look at verse 19 for a second. We can pick up some of the things that occurred. He said, if you are honest men, Joseph confronting his brothers, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, carry grain for the famine of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Now, they're starting to realize, man, whatever you know, role this Egyptian uh, leader has, things are coming back to us now full circle. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood for there was an interpreter between them. And he turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. 
Then Joseph gave orders to fill bags, fill their bags with grain, and to restore every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey, and thus it was done for them. And so they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. So Simeon has now been left behind, and this is another test of Joseph. Joseph was left behind. He ended up falsely accused. He ended up in prison. And he's, he's now putting them to the test and, and wondering, are they going to come back for Simeon? Are they going to go back and get Benjamin? They're going to have to face their dad, and they're going to have to fess up what's happened here. And 42.28 tells us something else that happened. Then he said to his brothers, my money has been returned, and behold, it's even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? Now, I think this is the first time that they realize that God is involved in this process. What is God doing right now? Have you ever been there before? A set of circumstances begin to fall together in some very interesting intersections, and all of a sudden you say, you know what? God may be trying to get my attention right now. Maybe God is in this. Has your heart ever sunk before as you begin to connect some dots and go, hmm, God may be speaking to me about what's going on. But when they told Jacob the story, Jacob wouldn't hear of it. He didn't want to release Benjamin. He had lost too much. What he didn't realize is that he had really lost nothing. He had lost time. But even Joseph that he thought was dead was really alive. So this takes us in now to chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. We're in the years of famine, severe conditions. This was Pharaoh's dream, seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, and they're in the famine season now. The seven years are literal. Sevens show up all over the dream sequence. So it came about when they finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. So now they've exhausted the grain. There's many mouths to feed. It's not just the brothers and dad. There's family, there's wives, there's children, servants, no doubt. And so there's many mouths to feed, and they've they've gotten a lot of grain and individually carried it back, but now they've exhausted it. I don't know how much time has gone by. I don't know how many meals they've shared together, how far this grain has gone by. But I could imagine that however many days it was, there must have been a lot of reflection. Maybe it was quiet uh, meals over the grain, but how many times do you think they replayed their interaction with this strange Egyptian leader? How many times do you think they replayed the conversation and went, why did he ask that? Why would he ask about our family? Why was the money in our sacks again? What's happening here? Have you ever had a situation that was a really strange encounter? And maybe you even kind of were wondering if God was trying to get your attention and you replay it over and over and over again. And you look at it from different angles and dissect it and multiply and subtract and add. And if you've had too much coffee, you stay up really late doing it, right? I wonder how many times this happened. I wonder how many times they went over the story. I wonder how many times they tried to return back to normal but there would be no normal. You don't leave your brother behind in prison, have a weird interaction with an Egyptian monarch and return to normal. It just doesn't happen. By the way, once you've really been exposed to the truth of Jesus Christ, you never turn back to normal, whatever normal might be. Amen? Man, when I heard the truth of Jesus Christ for the first time, 
I know I had gone into a church, it was very much like this, and I had grown up in uh, the Roman Catholic Church, had been away for a while, and then I went to an evangelical Christian church with acoustic guitars like Pastor Chris played tonight. He didn't have a Hawaiian shirt on, but most of the people where I was had a Hawaiian shirt on. And I was thinking, this is not church. These people have lost their minds. And look, I didn't become a Christian that night, but I thought a lot about what I experienced. I was looking around. I was planning exit strategy for half the church service. I don't remember anything that was said, but seeds were definitely planted in my life. Well, here they are. Here's this this family, but they're going to be forced to face their conscience. And I touched on this a few weeks ago that Joseph is putting them through the paces to get them to look at their hearts. And when you have an encounter with Jesus Christ, if you have a true encounter with Christ, one of the things that happens is you realize how sinful your sin really is. You realize, you know, you, you come to this point in your life where you go, man, I didn't realize the depth of my sin and the glory of what my Redeemer did for me. I mean, sometimes you come to like an intersection in life and you, you realize how sinful sin really is compared to the glory and holiness of God. And so they're going to have to face their conscience. And Jacob has made a strong proclamation. He says, no way, Benjamin is not going. But here, we're going to find that Egypt is their only option. In fact, the whole world is really beholden to Egypt and beholden to Joseph because Joseph had a plan based upon Pharaoh's dream. And people are streaming into Egypt as the only way to get help in the famine. And there's some interesting connections. I don't want to push this too far, but I was thinking, you know, when the Antichrist is reigning in the future, this is going to be one of the things that happens. We're going to have war famine and pestilence as you move through Revelation 6. And Revelation 13 says that this Antichrist will have a mark that people have to take, whatever that mark may be, and they will not be able to what? Buy or sell unless they have the mark. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine wanting to go to the market and be able to buy food for your family and, and you can't do it without this mark? And there are people who say, I'm gonna put off trusting in Christ until all that weird stuff starts happening that my friends told me about. Then I'll believe, yeah, right. When your life's on the line, I'm not sure. When starvation might be <laughs> what you're facing, I don't think so. But in our story here directly, and I think this is the, the application we need to focus on tonight, Egypt is the only option that they have because this is God's plan because Joseph is leading Egypt right now, right? And they're forced to go to the only place that they can go to, to buy grain or to find food. And this is how it works with Jesus. Joseph is a type of Jesus. And the only place to really find bread for the soul is Christ. You can dig up you know, uh, other places. You can drink out of broken cisterns. But eventually you're going to thirst again and again and again. You're going to be hungry again and again and again. Nothing's ever going to really satisfy your soul until you come to Christ. And many times God will set up famine-type conditions in your life. Maybe the famine will be severe. In our land, we have a famine for the Word of God. Amen? We need to get back to the Word of God. But sometimes He'll put us in a position where we sense this hunger deep in our souls and we're like, where do, you, where do I go to find satisfaction for this hunger? And you go to the one who is Jesus Christ, the bread of God, the bread that's come down out of heaven. 
The prodigal son came to his senses in severe famine conditions. You all remember the story. He went and spent all of his inheritance. And it says in Luke 15, 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one would give him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. You know, the prodigal didn't really come to his senses until he began to what? Experience starvation. And sometimes we go and we, we get enraptured by the bright lights and the big city and the big money and whatever it may be. And we go and sometimes we find ourselves in want. Some of you have found yourself at the end of yourself with drug addiction or pornography or relationships that were disastrous. They looked good until you started to get into them and you realize, man, there's so much ugliness and selfishness in the world. And when you were in a famine-type condition, maybe that's when you cried out. You know, there's been many, many people that got saved when they were on the floor. Amen? There's many, many people that cried out to God. You may be one of them. And in these severe famine conditions, this family's looking at one another, and they really have no other options, even though dad is totally against it. And so now Judah is going to speak. Judah is the fourth son, but he's become a leader. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It is interesting to me that Judah speaks up. And Judah spoke, and he said, the man solemnly warned us, look, Dad, we're not going to slip into Egypt and slip out. This, this uh, leader over Egypt, this man solemnly warned us, and he said, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Dad, we've been over this. I wonder how many times they talked about it, right? This man said to us, bring your little brother or don't bother coming at all. And dad had to hear it. Jacob had to hear it. It is interesting that Joseph's name means let him add, A-D-D. Let him add or Yahweh has added. It's interesting, Joseph is now in Egypt and Jacob is afraid to release Benjamin, the son of my right hand. But in releasing him, God's actually going to add and not take away. But we're so hesitant sometimes to let things go, right? And you can understand why. Jacob is like, man, Joseph's gone. They got Simeon in jail. I'm not releasing anybody to these sons of mine. But we got no grain. What am I going to do? And so Judah, Reuben had done this earlier, and now Judah steps up. And Judah says, Dad, release him. Release him to me. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy, buy you food, verse 4. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. You must release the son of your right hand. No Benjamin. No go. No tiki, no washi. <laughs> where did that come from? I don't even know where that came from. Three Stooges? Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate that. 
hey, Mo. Anyway. <laughs> the reality hit Jacob like a ton of bricks. I have to let him go. I've got no other option. Israel said, now, I just want to note in verse 6, sometimes people say in the Bible, when Jacob's name is used and he's acting like Jacob, and Jacob means conniver and heel catcher, the old, the old Jacob, right? And when he's called Israel, he's acting like the new guy, governed by God, or God prevails. Well, look at verse 6. Israel said, why, do you, why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? <laughs> now, I bring this up because we got a call recently on the Bible Answer Show, and the, the lady was asking, and it's a legitimate question. When a name is used interchangeably, you know, a person gets a new name, and sometimes he's called Jacob, and sometimes he's called Israel. Is it always in concert with the way he's behaving? So he's acting like the old man or the new man. Well, if we take this example, Israel, it seems like he's acting like the old Jacob. He says, why did you treat me so badly? Why did you tell the man that you had another brother? Why'd you tell him the truth? But they said, the man questioned us, particularly about us and our relatives, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? What do you want us to do? This sounds like an Italian conversation at the dinner table. What are you having with my hair? What do you want me to do? I don't know. When my wife was first introduced to the Italian dinner table, she learned that you had to just talk louder than everybody else or you would never be heard. <laughs> so she did. <laughs> She's Irish, so you know, she can, she can hold her own. So Judah steps up, and Judah said to his father, Israel, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Look, Dad, we're up against the wall here. We as well as you and our little ones, there's a lot at stake. I myself, says Judah, will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. Wow. Judah steps up. Judah's becoming a man of honor. And there's some interesting symbolism here, I think, with the lion of the tribe of Judah. You can... Maybe ponder that a little bit more, but he says, I will bear the blame forever if I don't come through. For if we had not delayed, surely now we could have returned twice. So time has gone by. They've been mulling over things. Dad's been obviously depressed, and now they're out of food. And Judah's saying, look, Dad, we could have, we could have gone and come back a couple of times. And so Israel responds. He says, if it must be so, then do this Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present a little balm, a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Now Jacob says, okay, I'm going to surrender to the inevitable that you have to go back and you have to take Benjamin, but I want you to take a care package for this mysterious Egyptian leader. So notice what he says to put in there. Put some balm and a little honey and aromatic gum and myrrh. Does that look familiar to any of you? Do you know that the caravan that was uh, going along and picked up Joseph that was heading to Egypt was carrying very similar items? 
There's some irony here. And so he says, put this care package together and I want you to take all these things, including the pistachio nuts and almonds, and I want you to take it to the man. And Jacob, uh, who's now called Israel, says, prepare this this, uh, care package and take double the money, verse 12, in your hand. Take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and arise and return to the man. I'm pro- I probably, I believe he probably said this with a gulp. And then he says, and may God Almighty, if you're interested, that's the name El Shaddai. El Shaddai means God is the controller of life. He's the one who um, uh, holds it all together. He says, may God Almighty, may El Shaddai grant you compassion. That's the word rakam, it's the word mercy in the sight of this man, that he may release to you your other brother, Simeon, and Benjamin, and as for me, he says, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Shakal is the word in Hebrew. It means if I am made childless, then I am made childless. It's the word in Hebrew uh, used for when a woman miscarries a child. When I first read this, I, I was thinking Jacob was saying, you know, On one hand, he was praying a prayer of faith. He was being a man of God. May God grant you mercy and compassion in the sight of this man. But then when I saw the next statement, I am bereaved of my children, I thought he's kind of like that man in Mark 9 who says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. But then I read it again, and it says, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And it uses the name Israel, and I, I showed you guys This is from James Montgomery Boyce. We were back in chapter, I think it was chapter 32. When God changes Jacob's name to Israel, the combination of the Hebrew words for Israel has been debated. And some people say it means governed by God. But actually, Boyce makes a good point. And he says, when the combination is used this way, he says, it's probably best to render Israel as God prevails. You see, when Jacob wrestled the, the angel that night, what happened to Jacob? He got touched on the, on the thigh, right? And he never walked the way, same way again. And in losing, he won. And his name got changed to God prevails. And this is what happens in this moment. Jacob doesn't understand it. He doesn't want to release Benjamin, but he's out of options. And he's, he brings God into it. And he says, look, I am going to send him And he says, and if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. God prevails. In the book of Esther, Esther had that moment where she had to go face the king. And Mordecai said, maybe you've been raised up for such a time as this. And Esther said, hey, tell the people in Susa, uh, let them fast for me. Please fast for me. And she said those famous words, you remember in Esther chapter 4? And if I perish, I perish. God prevails. And I think that's what Jacob's doing, and it's showing you something about what's happened and even in Jacob's heart. And this is the story of what it means to be a Christian. It means that God is gonna prevail, and if God is gonna prevail, that means you have to surrender. Oh, so hard, isn't it, to surrender? So hard to wave the white flag and say, okay, God, you can be God. He doesn't really need your permission. I'm sure you're figuring that out. 
You know, we think he does, though. God, I think uh, today it's a Tuesday. Uh, you can be my God today. No, he's God no matter how you pray or, you know, how you want to manipulate events. You have to surrender. You have to say, God, may your will prevail in my life. That's what God was doing in the life of Jacob. And this is a hard moment because Jacob doesn't see the story from our perspective. He doesn't know this Egyptian ruler is Joseph. He doesn't know that his whole family is going to be spared. He's going to have a place in Goshen. He's going to be blessed to see a son that he thought was dead is alive again. And he's going to have to just surrender. And that's the hard thing about surrender is we have to often surrender without seeing. If I could just see the end of the road, it would be much easier to surrender, God. Father, could you show me... Uh, I don't want to just see step A. I'd like to see M, preferably Z. Can I get a amen? <laughs> but here we are, and God says, I want you to walk by faith and not by sight. I want you to trust me. I'm going to prevail, right? You have to surrender. That's the hardest thing. And Jacob is, has come to this crisis moment, but it, he says, look, I'm going to, I'm going to put my trust in El Shaddai. I'm going to pray that this man shows you mercy, and I'm going to release the son of my right hand. And if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Jacob resolved to release the only son he had left from Rachel. And he was releasing him basically to God. He was saying, God, I'm going to give him to you. Please, work in a mighty way. Work in this man's heart. For all he knows, this man is a pagan ruler who may even think he himself is a god, a worshiper of pagan deities. He really has to trust the Lord. Sometimes God puts us in a place where the only option we have is to trust him. Oh, those are uncomfortable moments. Because if I have exit plans, if I have escape hatches, if something doesn't happen and I can still figure it out, then I'm much more comfortable. Anybody else? <laughs> but if God says, look, it's me or it ain't gonna happen, then that's faith. Do you remember when they were carrying the ark and they were gonna cross the Jordan and God said, I want the priest to take the ark. You're gonna, they're gonna lead the people. The, uh, Joshua tells us that the Jordan was at flood stage and I want the priest to set their feet in the Jordan and I'm not parting it until they step in. And there's been historians and those who study the topography of the land who say that the flood stage means the first step wasn't just, is it 85? I don't know if I want to go in the water today. No, the first step was a step over your head. If he doesn't part the river, you're in over your head. And look, that's a true step of faith. A step of faith is not, hmm. Now, I'm not saying to be reckless, okay? But if God has the ark on your shoulder and tells you to step in, then you obey him, right? And they did. And God parted the river and he held the water up like a heap and they had to stay there while about a million people crossed. Can you imagine? Hurry up. <laughs> the water, <laughs> speed it up, please. And so the men took the present, verse 15, they took double the money in their hands and Benjamin 
And then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. I'm sure that as Jacob was watching them go away, he, his heart had to sink. He was, for all intents and purposes, alone. When Joseph saw Benjamin, so now uh, fast forward, they've already arrived in Egypt with them. He said to his house steward, bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. This almost sounds like the prodigal story, at least in some respect. I'm sure on the other side, in Egypt, jo Joseph had been waiting with bated breath. He didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know what the brothers were going to do. He didn't know if dad was going to release Benjamin. I don't know if he had inter any interaction with Simeon. I don't know how long this time went by, but it must have moved very slow. And then he sees the men coming. He sees his brothers coming. And I'm sure his heart was thrilled. And he saw Benjamin, the brother that he has not seen for what would it be, over 20 years? I mean, it's been a long time. Can you imagine having a little brother you haven't seen for 20 years? You wondered if you'd ever see him again? So he saw Benjamin, and he, he sets this all up, and he says, bring the men into the house, slay an animal, make ready, and tell them we're to have lunch at high noon. Pastor Michael added that, but yeah. So the man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now, they show up, they've got the brother, and the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, is it because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we were being brought in that he may seek occasion against us to fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys? Man, they're thinking the worst. They're like, why, why is he inviting us into the house? I don't know. This is weird. Is it because of the money? As he said, an ambush for us. It was well known that uh, Egyptian rulers at this level often had dungeons in the, in the bottom of their house so they could have prisons right there. They're thinking, what are we walking into? I don't know. Are you a person that assumes the worst or the best in life? When opportunities come your way or you meet people, are you instantly negative or positive? Is the glass half empty? half full, overflowing, or do you have no glass at all? <laughs> Are you that kind of person? There's not even a cup to drink out of. Let's not talk about how much water's in there. And so they quickly want to talk to the house steward. They say, hey, come here for a second. Oh, my Lord, 20... We indeed came down the first time to buy food, and it came about when we came to the lodging place. Shh, shh, I'm talking quiet. I can tell the story. I added that. That we opened our sacks, and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand. Here's the money. We're not thieves, we promise. We have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. Now, they want to make sure this guy understands. Well, you know, we, we discovered this later. We promise. And he said, this is the house steward now. He said, be at ease, calm down. <laughs> Literally, the language is peace to you. Don't be afraid. Notice this. This is the house steward. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. I received your silver, NIV. Then he brought Simeon out to them. He says, look, boys, calm down. Take a chill pill. It's all right. I know that you paid the money. I know what happened here. 
Calm down. The God of your fathers is in all of this. Who is this house steward? Is he a Hebrew? Is he someone who has been converted to the true God by Joseph himself? I wouldn't doubt it. But he speaks words of calm. And then Simeon comes out. Now they might have been thinking, oh, Simeon's probably been sold off to some other caravan. Who knows where Simeon is? And now Simeon comes out. And he's looking pretty good. Looks like he's been fed, taken care of. The steward literally says to them, Shalom lakem. God is with you. You are not enemies, you are friends. And the man brought, uh, the, then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys fodder or food. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. And when Joseph came home, they brought, they brought into the house to him the present which was in the hand, in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Another fulfillment of Joseph's dream, right? At least in part. Then he asked them about their welfare. You're gonna see the word shalom whenever you see the idea of welfare or well. He asked them about their welfare, shalom. Said, is your father well, shalom, of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? He has questions. They said, your servant, our father, is well, shalom. He is still alive. And they bowed down in homage. Now Joseph has found out what he wants to know because he wants to see his dad again. And he lifted his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, his only true brother from both parents. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And can you imagine the last time you saw him, he was just little. Now he's a grown man with a five o'clock shadow. Probably more because the Hebrews had beards. Is this him? Yes. Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. This is what we find in the Aaronic benediction in Numbers 625. And to my knowledge, it's nowhere else in scripture. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Joseph says, he says, may God be gracious to you. And Joseph hurried out for he was deeply stirred. Literally, he was, his compassion grew warm as the Hebrew over his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and wept there. And can you imagine the, the brothers are watching all this. They've got water for their feet, food for their donkeys, he looks at this kid and he says, God, be gracious to you. And then he runs out of the room. And they're like, this dude is weird. Where's he going? I don't know. What's he up? He looks at Benjamin and runs out, finds a place to weep, weeps there for a while. And God has made Joseph's dreams come true. He's probably about 40 years old. He's seen his little brother again. I wonder how many nights he wondered, will I ever see my brother? Will I ever see my father? God is a God who makes dreams come true. As long as they're his dreams, amen? amen. If he gives you a dream, he gives you a vision, he says, this is what I'm gonna do, you hold on. He will bring it to pass. And so now it's come in God's way and in God's time. You know, when Joseph originally had the dream and shared it with his brothers, he's 17. Let's just assume for the moment he's 40. That's 23 years. Some of you have been praying over things for a long time. You've been holding on. God has spoken to you. And you've been saying, Lord, 
I believe you're going to do this, but here's the thing. This is what we learn in Joseph's story and a bunch of other stories in Scripture. God does things in his way and what? In his time. He never seems to be in the same hurry that I am. I'm always trying to speed things along. This is Pastor Michael. This is a confession. I like, let's go. Let's get it done. And God's often saying, slow down. Just trust me. So he washed his face and he came out and controlled himself and said, serve the meal. So they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Wow. They didn't want to eat with them. The Hebrews probably thought, oh, that's fine. You eat over there. Some family meals we set up this way, they're particular family members. We put it at a different table in a different room. Just kidding, we, we don't. We don't really do that. <laughs> we've had thoughts of it, but we've never really followed through. So, verse 33. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in astonishment. I mean, they looked around, they said, wait a minute, we're in, we're in our exact order. How does he know this? I don't know how he knows. Seated by age, birthright, feasting in the home of the viceroy of Egypt. And now their fears are dissipating in the beauty of a meal. There is irony here again. For years ago, they had sat down to eat a meal while Joseph was separated from them and pleaded for his life from a pit. One writer says, again, such mercy. But whereas in the first meal, Joseph was the victim, now he is the victor. For Joseph, it was like he was back home again. He had longed to eat this meal with them and to tell them who he really was. Can you imagine Joseph's emotions? His little brother's there. He's back with all his brothers like it used to be at the breakfast table years ago. God has brought everything back to Joseph. You ever just taken a snapshot of your life and realize how many blessings God has put into your life? You should do that. Life can speed by us so quickly. Slow down and try to take some snapshots, man. Because we have a lot of blessings to count. And even if we've suffered some loss, God is good. Jesus said to the apostles the night before he would die on the cross, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And in the upper room on that night before he faced the cross, they had a meal together. And Jesus transformed or changed the, the Passover uh, meal into a meal that would remember the true Passover lamb as he took the bread and said, this is my body, he took the cup and said, this is my blood, do this in remembrance of me. As they sat there, the oldest to the youngest in awe and mystery, there's a great significance in this meal because to have a meal with someone in that culture, it meant everything. And Jesus says to us tonight, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. It's a great evangelistic verse, but it's actually written to a church. If you will open the door, I will come in and dine with you and you with me. Jesus is speaking of intimate fellowship, and he took portions to them from his own table. I think this is another test. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. He got five times as many pancakes as the other brothers. 
Imagine that you get, you know, you get your plate and then it's a, like a, a good portion, but then they're piling it on Benjamin's place, plate five times as much. Now, this is a test because I think they were wanting to see if the brothers would, you know, try to fork an extra pancake or go, hey, why is he getting more food? Why is he being favored above us, which was the original issue with Joseph, and Joseph knew it. But even though he received five times as much as theirs, they feasted and they drank freely with him. And they had to be looking at each other going, is this real? Yeah. The second highest ruler to only to Pharaoh, we're in his house, we're, we're feasting, we're drinking. I don't know, but it's pretty cool. I don't even mind that Benjamin has five extra pancakes because I've got pancakes too. And they were celebrating. And this looks forward to a meal that will come at our master's table. Now, I want to tell you that even though this is a glorious moment, that the test will not end. There's going to be one more test, and it's going to happen in the life of Benjamin. And Benjamin's going to be accused of something, and the whole thing is going to come full circle. And some of you who have been coming, and you've been sharing in the story of Joseph, you, you're asking this question, when's the big reveal going to happen? I've been waiting. You have to wait just a little bit longer. It's coming very soon. But Joseph has a plan that he's executing, and he wants to see their hearts. You cannot hide heart change. A change of heart always comes out in your behavior. Now, you're not going to be perfect as a Christian. We all know that. But I think Joseph's been doing this to see their hearts. And sometimes God, you know, puts us through stuff that our heart might, might be, be revealed. Not that he needs to know it, but sometimes we need to know it. Would you just bow with me? Father, as we, we're going to get ready to come to your table tonight and celebrate in anticipation of a great feast that's coming, what the Bible says, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're gonna feast with you, and we're gonna forget the former days and the problems and the sin, and we're gonna look into your eyes and see your face. And we will see you just as you are. And in many ways, this table is kind of a foreshadowing of that, Lord. We're so grateful for your mercy. The only reason we will be at that table in that day is because you're a God of mercy. You're a God of redemption. A God that does not hold our sins against us. A God that cleanses and redeems. And we're here tonight, Lord, because that's what you've done for us. And if you're here and you've not met this great Savior, Jesus, who took your punishment, took your place, shed his blood at the cross and rose from the dead. Open up your heart tonight to him. Make it official. Say, Lord, pray, pray it right now. Lord, I want to know you. I want to know the power of your resurrection and even the fellowship of your sufferings. I want to know you. I want to know what it means to walk with you. Forgive me, Lord, and change my heart. I repent of my sin and I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. If you're a prodigal tonight, maybe you've been running, maybe you, you, know, you could relate to Jacob, you've been having a hard time releasing stuff to God, just say, Lord, tonight I want you to prevail. Your will, not mine. I'm not gonna fight you. I'm gonna trust you as El Shaddai. 
the God that's in control, the God that's sovereign. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts, this beautiful congregation to come to your table, thank you that you invite us to remember, to reflect, to look forward, to make sure our hearts are clean and pure before you, to confess sin that we might have in our hearts, Lord. But you invite us to this table to remember a God that loved us to the end and a God that will be faithful to bring us all the way home. We're just so grateful. So we just want to say we love you tonight, and I pray you'll bless each one that approaches your table. Touch them in the way that they need it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.